the otter has always been my totem animal. Welcome to Nature Magic. Today I'm talking to David Sobel as a contributor to the Nature Educators series within Nature Magic. David is a professor in the education department at Antioch University, New England. He consults and speaks widely on child development and place-based education with schools, environmental organizations, and the National Park Service in the US. He has authored eight books and more than 70 articles focused on children and nature for educators, parents, environmentalists, and school administrators in the last 30 years. His published books include Beyond Ecophobia and Place-Based Education, Design Principles for Educators, and Wild Play, Parenting Adventures in the Great Outdoors. His most recent book is Nature Preschools and Forest Kindergartens, published by Redleaf Press. He was recognised as one of the daring dozen educational leaders in the United States in 2007. This interview investigates David's deep connection with nature and how he believes we can foster the innate spiritual connection that children have with the natural world and how this benefits humanity and our planet. A fabulous educator and an all-round nice guy. Welcome, David Sobel. Hi, David. You're very, very welcome to the Nature Magic podcast. Great to be here, Mary. Thanks for having me. So would you like to tell us how did you become a nature lover and maybe a little bit about how nature appeared in your life? I always like to answer that question by saying that I had negligent parents. So um, I was a free range child um, before that term existed. And so um, I wound up living in the formative time of my childhood, which was from about seven years on, I wound up living on Long Island Sound in an area that was um, still reasonably rural. And I had access to the beach and salt marshes and um, abandoned farms and an interesting uh, neighborhood of explorable, uh, explorable natural world. And so, you know, I went crabbing a lot and dug for clams and, uh, you know, kind of found my way to these really interesting mud pits where you could cover your body completely with black mud and, uh, you know, walked across little rickety bridges and explored old farm buildings. And, um, and I think that's where my bonding with nature happened. Um, and, you know, it, we had that classic, we had a big black gong kind of bell right out in front of the house. And, you know, you had to come home for dinner when you heard the bell gong. Um, and so we were gone, you know, I was gone the whole, you know, from breakfast to dinner, and I would maybe show up for lunch uh, without anybody really knowing where I was or what we were doing. Uh-huh. And, and did, uh, how did your mother like it when you turned up covered in black mud from head to foot? Well, by the time we got back, we, we had kind of washed off. <laughs> <laughs> but she didn't ever really know that the black mud experiences were happening. Oh, that's fabulous. Uh, we'll talk about all your work with nature and children and getting children connected to nature. But first of all, 
have you a favorite plant or animal that you'd like to speak about? Yeah, the, the interest, when I read that question, the first plant that came to my mind was not one that I would have thought of, and it was snowberry. And snowberry is a tiny little uh, kind of northern boreal forest ground creeping plant that has these tiny, tiny little white berries um, that taste intensely wintergreeny. And um, I think it has something to do with the fact that I spent a lot of time in my young adulthood on uh, Canadian wilderness Canadian canoe trips in which uh, uh, winter uh, snowberry was one of the things you found. You usually don't find it. It's more a kind of a boreal forest, a pure boreal forest kind of plant. But there's something about the intenseness of the wintergreen flavor and its um, kind of miniature quality that really appeals to me. And then in terms of animals, um, the otter has always been my totem animal. So freshwater otters rather than sea otters, because that's the, what I know best. And one of the first things I ever wrote was an article called Otter Delight. Uh, and it was about uh, an, ex, uh, an outing I took by myself uh, middle of the winter, probably this time of the winter. And I followed an otter's track for miles and miles, essentially along a frozen river um, and could see places where, it would, where there was breaks in the ice that was going down underneath the ice and fishing and coming back up and eating. And so you could see the remnants of the otter uh, feed. And then I found my way to a place where there was a very, a kind of a, a gently sloped frozen stream. And I uh, lay down and I was able to slide my way down the ice around the rocks in a way that was most similar to what I imagined the otter's experience was like. And it was, it was, I've never had that experience other than that time, but it was great to simulate what the otter's sinuous uh, experience of sliding in snow was would have been like. Oh, that sounds fabulous. And did you see otters when you were in Canada? The canoe trip sounds marvelous. Every now, every now and then, but the, uh, where we were, we, where we were was mostly north of the otters range, I think. So you see them more around where I live in this part of in this part of New England. So you might have seen other animals up there. Oh, Did yeah. you see bears? Bears and very infrequently elk. Oh, lovely. Uh, and I can't quite remember. I think there was one time we saw a polar bear. That was a big deal. Oh my goodness! <laughs> we were just far enough. We were just at the uh, edge of the tundra, and so. Um, Seeing a polar bear from a great distance was a great thrill. Beautiful. And were you up high enough to see the northern lights? Yes. We, yes. There, I remember one spectacular time in northern Ontario. We were on a rocky islet in the middle of a lake, and the northern lights were spectacular. It was the best northern lights experience I've ever had. Wow. So green yeah. and red and yellow, all different colors, or was it the greeny blues yeah. sort of? Those that time it was mostly greeny blue. We didn't get the kind of reds and yellows kind of experience. Wow, that's an amazing, amazing experience to have. I know you are spiritually connected to nature. Have you any instances you want to share with the listeners 
I actually want to give that a little backdrop because I've written about this some. There's a couple of really interesting studies, one that was a British study and what was one that was an um, American study that uh, asked people about their spiritual experiences in childhood. And um, in both of these studies, there was an interesting subset of spiritual experiences in the natural world that happened. Uh, uh, particularly between, you know, six, five or six and, and 11 or 12. Uh, and the accounts of these spiritual experiences were all about um, this momentary glimpse of some other world in which there was a unity of all things, in which the child felt like there was no difference between herself and the trees and the river and the meadows. It was this kind of sense of uh, profound oneness. And so uh, when I actually read those studies, I, it brought back uh, an experience I had had from around 10 years old when I lived where I was describing earlier. And it was a snow day from school. So we didn't have school. And um, some friends of mine had, and I had decided, we had this game that we would play where we would, where somebody would go off and leave a trail through the snow. And then the other person would wait for 20 or 30 minutes and then follow and then track the other person. In this case, it was a friend of mine and his little brother. And so I was tracking them in a place that I had never been before. Um, there was a big haunted house on a hill that, that we used to go to a lot, but this was beyond that in this kind of scrubby uh, forest, land, forest old meadow land. And I was kind of tromping, kind of wading through the snow because the snow was really heavy and deep. And um, my glasses were fogging up. And I remember, you know, stopping and feeling like, um, you know, I was in the middle of some fantastic adventure and I was alone and at one with the world, but not scared. You know, even though I was not in a place that I had ever been before, I felt immersed in the world and at one with it. Um, and I haven't had a lot of those kinds of experiences. That's very, very powerful. I've been thinking a lot about those kind of experiences lately, and especially with children. And I think it's what people are trying to get into with meditation. And I was watching yeah. Jill Bolt-Taylor, who did My Stroke of Insight. She was the doctor. She's done a TED Talk. And she is a neuroscientist. And she had a stroke herself. And she's oh, right. talking. Mm -hmm. So the left side of her brain was damaged. And she was mm -hmm. instantly in the right side of her brain, which doesn't have all the chitter chatter in it. And she felt that expansive. Um, she couldn't tell where the end of her fingers were. She was completely immersed without right. any sensory. So I think that kind of a feeling is the real mindfulness that people right. are searching for and children can sort of drop into it quite naturally. So that's, that was a really powerful experience you had and something that stuck with you. And I wish all children could have similar instances like that. Right. One of the things that I've said is 
um, one transcendent nature experience is worth a thousand nature facts. And by that, I mean that what happens in nature education or environmental education a lot of the time is this emphasis on, uh, is on naming and telling kids, you know, nature facts. And if what we want is um, adults who are environmentally responsible and are stewards of the environment, it might be that the transcendent nature experience in childhood, it, it, at which you feel at one with the natural world, that might be the most potent determining factor in shaping environmentally responsible adults. Absolutely. We have the Borough Nature Sanctuary here in Kimvara, and it's a place where pe people can come and children, where they can go out into nature. So it's sort of a safe place. We've passed with different habitats, but we found that the way to encourage children out not to say, you know, go out, we're going on a nature trail. We've got fairies in the fairy woodland and animals. And all you have to do is give them a reason to go out. But you have to give them that reason. And then you know, they, they have the experience then. You've done a lot with education with small people. Would you like to tell us briefly, very concisely, what your thoughts are now in that realm of education? Yeah, I think... Uh... You know, I was in uh, the burn once for about a week or so, about eight or nine years ago, I think. And I remember two different things that were kind of uh, that symbolized my sense of um, what we should be doing out in nature with kids. One was I think we were at the at the burn perfumery and there was this great expanse of Greek pavement near the perfumery and kids were hop were kind of playing this hopscotch game across the, the Greek. Is that the correct pronunciation? Yeah, they're Clints and Greeks. So the Greeks are the splits. And the way you remember yeah. is you park your bike in a Greek. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you're right, you're right. They were hopping the Greeks. They were hopping the Greeks. And it was um and so it's that kind of uh interactive physical uh engagement with the landscape, you know, that kind of small physical challenges, rock hopping. That's a lot of what I think we need to be providing for kids. And that's one of the things that I think is missing a lot for children nowadays. And then the other thing was um, seeing these little tiny potholes with beautiful little uh, gardens inside them. Uh, and so I've written a lot about the the virtue of small world play in childhood and how uh, what kids really want to do is find and create small worlds and then play inside them. And there was a certain that those potholes that were individual mini gardens really evoked that for me. Yeah, I think the fairy idea is the same. You know, the fairies live in houses and then this whole imagination, I take them on a walk, but um they tell me everything that's in the house and how the fairies are using the hazelnut shells for drinking. Right. And, you know, so they're, they're doing this imaginary world. You're quite yeah. right. So, yeah. So one of the books that I wrote is called Childhood and Nature Design Principles for Educators. And in that book, what I tried to do was identify what the recurrent play motifs are in childhood around the world. So one of them is small worlds play, you know, 
building fairy houses. And another one is adventure, the great copying. Um, so I identified seven different things that children, all children do when they have access to safe natural worlds. The other, some of the other ones are fort building or den building. And another one is making maps and paths. Another one is creating these intimate relationships with animals. Um, so all children do that. If there are these recurrent uh, things that children play at and that they're consistent across different cultures and environments, then they represent these deep impulses in children to create to relate to the natural world. So then what we should do in nature education or environmental education is use those play motifs as design principles. So you saying we're gonna go out and build fairy houses is using the, the small world's design principle to engage kids in the natural world. And so that's been a, one of the things that I've kind of advocated for is trying to look at where kids' natural fascinations are and then try and work with them and extend them. Mm, that's very interesting. And we'll put the links to the books in the show notes. We use that a lot. We have guinea pigs that are the perfect small child <laughs> pet. Yep. They like being petted. They're happy to sit in one place for a long time. They don't go for you. They just <laughs> sit there. <laughs> and really with lots of urban children, it's the first thing they do is they sit in the shed and we put a bit of carpet down and the guinea pig, they start feeling the guinea pig instant I mean they're all drawn to them absolutely and absolutely love them and then there's the goats and the donkeys and then we go out into the nature walk and they start to maybe make some kind of uh, connection with plants and but the okay. guinea pig is a great tool yeah you're right I've always I've always thought that what nature centers should do is have a pet lending libraries right so that because it's that it's the connection to the natural world through the small animal that is a potent it's you know it's a potent uh, vehicle to environmental care and so for kids that for parents that don't want to have the burden of a full-time pet right uh or at least they want a starter pet for their kids if environmental centers actually lent out animals um, so you could try it out. I think that would be a great vehicle towards connecting kids with the natural world. Oh, that's a lovely idea. I'll definitely think of that. And if, yeah. and if you can't get your own animal library, I do recommend guinea pigs. Yeah. Much, much above rabbits. Rabbits don't particularly want to be a pet. And right. they, they live for quite 10 years or something. But guinea pigs like being pets. And they live right. for sort of four to six years. So your children can go off to college and you're not stuck with a rabbit for the next 15 years <laughs> that's brilliant so we've got the small worlds and the animal connection what's the next one uh forts and forts and dens i call it special places to that's the generic term that's the one that i've done i've i wrote a book about the first book i wrote was on children's special places because what happened was i was I had a contract to write a book about map making because uh, I was really intrigued with the whole process of children, of in, encouraging uh, children's map making and also using map making children's maps to understand how they perceived the world. Um, and so I did research both in 
uh, England in um, Devon. I worked in a primary school that was near Dartmoor, not on Dartmoor, but near Dartmoor. And then for the second half of the year, uh, my wife and I and my daughter, who at that point was only a year old, lived on a little really isolated island in the Caribbean. And I did the same research there that I did in Devon. And in each case, I was actually having kids draw me maps of their neighborhoods. And I would do it with children from ages five up through 13. Because I thought I was going to write this book about map making. But in the process of that, what fascinated me was that the same interest and intrigue that kids had with fort building or den building or in the Caribbean, they were called bush houses. Um, it, it was exactly the same in these two radically different cultures, right? So in England, you know, kind of mossy and wet and damp. And in the Caribbean, it was this kind of spare cactusy Caribbean uh, desert -y island. Um, but the same fascination was being expressed by kids in both places. Uh, and so it made me realize that, oh, here's a, here's a, um, a, a childhood phenomenon that's consistent across cultures and, and ecosystems. And therefore, it must, uh, there must be some biological disposition towards this that's genetic. Um, and so that got me into this whole idea of, of um, children's special places and why kids create them and why, and why we should support it. I do agree that the uh, genetic um, themes that go through, and I think one of the genetic inheritances that some children have are ponies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's in them. Some of them, it's in them. Uh, there's nothing I've, you can do about it. I've actually said that it's... It's nine-year-old girls that have the that have the most intense pony disposition. Obsessions, yes. Yeah, yeah. I've got a great image uh, from Denbury in Devon of these two girls behind a fence, and there's one little slat of the fence that's open, and you can see their faces, and that's their stable, and this is the place that they play horses or ponies in their neighborhood, and so it kind of symbolizes to me that fascination that especially girls have for ponies. Yeah, and I think there's something about young children and horses that they're probably still more in that part of their brain where it's it's all visual and sensory rather than chatter, chatter, chatter. And the horses right. communicate like that as well, so they instantly understand right. each other. But maybe that's only a theory. So we're back to this question now of what would you suggest for people to do to support nature? I'm a big advocate for children having the kind of childhood that I had. So I'm a big advocate for this notion of free range childhoods. An incredibly controversial idea these days um, because parents are, are so afraid of you know, what can happen to their kids if they're outside of their purview. And so if we want kids to bond with the earth, then I think they need to have that kind of free range childhood so that they can range freely and explore the world, the natural world on their own. And so I think I was the good fairy, like Rachel Carson said, um, I would want kids to be able to um, have access to exploring in the natural world relatively freely and not being, and not being indoors, attending to screens all the time.
Yeah, sure. I totally agree. I think one part of the fear of parents is the internet and the instant connectedness of people who may have a dark motive with children. And that, I don't know how you balance those two things, you know, having a safe place where children can roam freely and we're happy right. enough about it, parents are, and right. and not giving people, f- the other people with dark motives free reign. That's a modern problem, I'm afraid. Yeah. Do you have any favorite or inspiring nature books you'd like to recommend to people? You know, when I started thinking about this, the books that I went to were not conventional nature books, but I'll describe them. The one, the book that I first, my mind first went to is a book by John Nichols called The Last Beautiful Days of Autumn. And it's not a well-known book at all. He's a novelist who wrote the Malagro Beanfield Wars and things like that. But he wrote this one book that's kind of a, a prose poem kind of book about his relationship to the land where he lived in New Mexico. And uh, the notion of the last beautiful days of autumn, um, of those of those perfect days just before winter, when life is kind of you're kind of there's a, a kind of a fullness and a kind of incipient melancholy about the you know about the beauty ending. Um, there's something about that that's really evocative for me. So I love that book. The other couple of books that really stand out for me have are the books that really shaped my thinking about children and nature. One of them is called The Magical Child by Joseph Chilton Pierce. In that he posits that children go through a developmental stage uh, that he refers to as bonding with the earth. And that's the period between six and seven and 11 or 12 or 13. It's he contends and other people have contended that there's, if not a critical period, a sensitive period in which children have that disposition that goes along with that whole, you know, that those spiritual experiences in childhood Mm -hmm. notion. And so his portrait of what development of what child development should look like and how important it is for children to connect to the natural world during that time frame. um, is um, was shaped a lot of my thinking. There's another book by a woman uh, named Edith Cobb called The Ecology of Imagination in Childhood, in which she basically describes the same process. Um, and so it's that it's middle childhood and how it's so important to connect kids with the natural world at that point that have been important to me. And then the last book for me was a, um, a kind of esoteric book by a guy named Paul Shepard called The Tender Carnivore and the Sacred Game. Wow. And it's, and it's essentially a cultural evolution. And his point is that we're essentially genetically hunters and gatherers. And you understand what we should do uh, what our relationship with the natural world should be like by looking at what hunting and gathering cultures and tribes experience of the world is. And it's particularly valuable to look at what the child's experience is in hunting and gathering cultures to understand 
what children want to do and how to support their development through the natural world. They do all those seven things. So as I started, you know, I started out saying, oh, this special places thing is a, is a, genet- is a genetic theme. I started looking at hunting and gathering cultures and then started to see what the other recurrent things were. There's really good material in autobiographies of Native American children, right? That wow. grew up as Sioux and Navajo. Those, those, those autobiographies address all these kinds of fascinations with learning the natural world as being the, the, the major task of childhood. Where would you find those autobiographies? Uh, there's one called An Indian Boyhood okay. by a guy named Charles Eastman. And are you working on any book at the moment? Well, I just finished a book called The Sky Above and the Mud Below uh, that was about, that was actually, that's actually the name of a, um, a movie about a French-Dutch expedition to New Guinea to kind of uh, it was an anthropological uh, expedition to kind of encounter and start to document the lives of of the hunter and gatherer tribes in the way interior in New Guinea. The story is about how strange and unusual that these tribes behaviors were and that's the image of the book of when the early child the people from the early childhood licensing bureau come to forest kindergartens or nature preschools and see kids you know outside stomping in mud puddles and having raspberry paint on their faces and things like that it's it's kind of like the white westerners visiting the primitive of hunters and gatherers so that book is a, is a collection of articles from nature based early childhood educators around uh, the united states who are trying to naturalize early childhood programs. So that was the last book I did. The book that I would love to get published is a novel that I've written that was a um, that was based on a story that I told my own children for about six, six or seven years. And it's the, the novel is called The Emerald Chandelier. Ooh. And it's, and it's a, it's a classic there's a young prince and a young, you know, a kind of royal family, prince and princess. They go off to uh, manage this, uh, the mine operation in a little village. And there's a dragon. And um, so it's a story that I started to tell when I was on a, or I'd gone on a walk with my daughter and I'd been pointing out mica and tourmaline and garnets and other kind of local New England crystals. And then I got the idea of telling this story that basically had local natural history embedded in it, but it was also fanciful and had dragons and adventure and uh, talking animals and that kind of thing. So it was at the time at which what I was trying to do was, uh, cultivate a a culture of family storytelling. This is something that I would like to write a book about, is this is uh, the tradition of family storytelling. It tends to be done by dads um, rather than moms, Uh, but I've gotten lots of examples of it where dads create a story 
and the characters in the story represent the kids in the family, the stories wind up being completely unique to the kids in the family and the places where people live. Um, so that there's a, it's an independent species of storytelling that will emerge in families. And it creates a sense of family unity and a bondedness with the natural world potentially. So this story that I was telling was at this point where I was trying to cultivate this uh, disposition of when children, my kids said to me, daddy, tell us a story. I would tell a story and I would, and it, you know, I would make it up as I was going along. And it was, a discipline that I had to train myself into because it would be really easy to say, oh, I'm too tired. I don't want to tell a story right now. But so this one story, you know, I wouldn't tell it. I might tell it once a week or sometimes I would tell it only once a month. Um, and I usually had a sense of where the next chapter was going to go, but not necessarily. And oftentimes in the middle of the story, stuff happened that I hadn't anticipated at all. This is, you know, if you read descriptions of novelists, they'll talk about this same process of like, all of a sudden the characters take over and you didn't realize that that's what they were gonna do. So I told that story for six or seven years. And then about 10 years ago, I decided to write it. That's the book that I would like to get published, but I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Oh, that sounds absolutely fascinating. It just reminded me also of my cousin, my lovely cousin, Elizabeth. And when her children were small, one of her boys didn't want to go on a walk. And I think this is fairly common. You know, you start dragging children on a walk and they're like, oh, I want to go home. So she, and then she started bringing sweets and then she said, I can't bring sweets to bribe them along a walk. So she decided to do stories and she'd say, okay, I'll tell you the next bit at that tree when we get yeah. there. And I'll tell you the next bit of that stone. And that went on for years. So I, I've used that. Um, so that was a mom. That was a mom. That was a right? mom. But you sound like a fabulous dad. Uh, sounds like a great story. And also we have the we have a fairy story that goes around. Our nature walk is about a mile long. So the next paragraph is at the next bit. So because children always want to get to the next thing, you know, if right. they have an aim. So then, oh, what's happening? And so I, I actually, I did that because of Elizabeth. I've only ever seen a couple of examples of this. Basically a natural amusement park that was constructed in the woods on the edge of a lake in Maine. And it was this, uh, this dad and his two kids that over the course of about 10 years constructed on this patch of not terribly interesting kind of spruce fir forest, all these different trails that had basically not written stories, but, uh, but miniature world stories built into the uh, bases of the trees, you know, so where the hemlock trees, you know, the roots spread out, there'll be a little alcove. And there were, and so that they had trolls and other kinds of miniature uh, animals. So one trail would be this one story about the trolls that would, you'd go from one spot to the other and you would see the evolution of this story. Cool. Then there were then there were uh, kind of um, uh, amusement park rides. There was a there was an airplane ride that was like a zip line that had a little airplane that you kind of the kids would climb into this little airplane and then you'd tow it back to the end of the zip line and then you'd fly through the forest on the zip line, kind of like 
in the Star Wars movies. There is uh, Captain Hook's ship out in the woods. This was a big 20 foot ship that was two, you know, that had a, a deck and it had a below deck and there were costumes in the boat. There was a big costume treasure chest. So you could dress up like Peter Pan or Captain Hook. And there was also a treasure chest full of jewels. Um, there were tree houses. There was a hollow tree you could climb up the inside of to a little perch outside. And so it took all these childhood fascinations and actually constructed them. And, um, and it lasted, it was kind of similar to the story that I told my kids. It lasted for about six or eight years during that period of time that where children are engaged with that kind of fantasy world. And then it kind of, and then it disappeared. So it was, a, it was an ephemeral magical world constructed basically for the neighborhood kids. And I've always wanted to see a nature center go this path, is create this kind of thing for kids where the emphasis was on fantasy and play rather than on teaching natural history. Mm, well, maybe we're going slightly towards that. That's that's right. fascinating. Wouldn't it be interesting to find those kids now and see um, how yeah. it impacted them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're very yeah. lucky, my, lucky kids, children. Right. And my kids visited, you know, we would go up and spend time at that visiting some friends of ours. And then we would always go there. And they're, they have vivid memories of it. Amazing. If you had a magic wand, what would you like to do for the planet or... For the children, whatever's your wish. Yeah. yeah, I would go back to that thing that we were talking about before is I would uh, try and figure out how to erase parental fear and uh, make it possible for kids to, you know, be outside on their own in reasonably safe environments. Because I think that's what that's what kids need. And I think we really need to counteract uh, the couch potatoification of children's lives, especially, and that's especially true right now. There has been this rediscovery of the natural world as a function of the pandemic, which is one of those minor silver linings. True. Yeah, and and so I think one of the things. So one of the things I don't know if it's happened in um, Ireland, but one of the things that's happened here is this this advocacy for. Um, outdoors and nature and place-based education that we've been advocating for for the last 20 years has ha actually happened during the pandemic. So there's been this great movement to school outdoors. And so we're trying to figure out now how to preserve this, out, this movement of education outdoors that's happened as a function of the pandemic, how we can make it persist after the pandemic wanes. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. We've had a lot of uh, people contacting the Borough Nature Sanctuary and asking for guests to talk about outdoor education, uh, nature education. And I think some of the schools that were taking kids outside that have been able to remain open might have been doing it once a week. And now they realize they could do it five days a week, right. you know, and they've, uh, they've accommodated, you know, clothing or whatever. So that, that is very true. Do you want to tell everybody where they can contact you, point them towards your books or anything before I let you go? Thank you for sticking by the computer with me. Yeah, I've got some web pages at davidsobelauthor.com. 
com, I think is what it is. And that's where all my books are. And there's a bunch of my articles there as well. Lovely. So I'll put all that in the show notes. And we hope that we'll see the Emerald Chandelier very soon. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you, Mary. Thank you for listening to Nature Magic. Please subscribe and share with your friends to help spread the positivity. We have lots of fascinating guests lined up. Our next episode with horse trainer and YouTube superstar Warwick Schiller is on training horses with telepathy and what horses can teach us. To be in with the chance of the monthly draw of a fantastic haul of Irish gifts from the Borough Nature Sanctuary shop, please review the podcast and send a screenshot to mary at boroughnaturesanctuary.ie. And don't forget, Amelia the pig is now Zooming. Just 10 euros for Amelia to pop into your Zoom call or staff meeting. She's having a lot of fun doing this and is extremely keen to say hello as she knows the occasional marshmallow is involved. Just 10 euros, all proceeds towards animal upkeep. And have a look at the Borough Nature Sanctuary shop. We have a few Avoca rugs left at great discounts.